You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. In most instances, most of us typically try to avoid pain as much as we can. And rightly so. It hurts. Whether it's physical pain from an injury or sickness, or emotional pain from a broken relationship, or perhaps one that we love who has died, or maybe it's spiritual pain over our own sin, or the brokenness of the world. Whatever it is, it hurts. So we try to avoid it as much as we can. The problems arise, however, when we allow our attempts to avoid pain, when we allow those attempts to cause us to miss out on God's efforts to heal us and restore us. Because just like a surgeon's scalpel to remove a cancerous tumor hurts To a degree, it's not as bad as the cancers spreading and filling our bodies and all of the pain and suffering that comes with the advance of the disease. So also, when God brings the scalpel to deal with the sin in our lives, the brokenness, even the rebellion, It hurts, but it doesn't hurt as bad as if that were allowed to run rampant and spread. Another problem arises when we allow the reality of pain to lead us to distrust the character of God. This is a big problem for a lot of folks. We're going to dig into it more deeply as we get into the text. But in short, it basically goes, if God is love and if God is good and if God is all-powerful, why is there so much suffering and pain? The thing to see and the place for us where we focus our reflections comes in the recognition that Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane combines the deep agony of the world's pain with the perfect love of the triune God. He takes the two and he weaves them together holds them alongside one another so that we can begin to see that the fact of pain, the fact of our pain, does not negate the love of God. Sometimes our pain can cause us to question God's love. Jesus, in his prayer in Gethsemane, 
helps us to see that the reality of pain does not negate the love of God. This text is remarkable in the way that it amplifies Jesus' agony. I'm going to read it again. We'll probably read through it several times. As we do, notice how the further you get into the very short story, the further Jesus goes into the garden, the more alone He gets, the fewer disciples go with Him, and the more pronounced the more vivid Mark's description of his suffering and his agony becomes. The deeper he goes into the garden, the harder his agony becomes. Hear it again. They go, Jesus and his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. They've just had this Last Supper together where he's described uh, the breaking of the bread as the breaking of his body for the life of the world. And the thing is, if he wanted to get away, he probably had a chance. He knows that Judas is about to betray him. He knows that the soldiers will be coming. And he could have, you know, instead of going to the garden, scooted on out of town or something like that, you know, maybe give it some time to blow over, allow things to to get better and don't go back to the temple and cause any more trouble and just kind of let things smooth out. And maybe he could have avoided the pain that was coming. But instead... He goes to Gethsemane and he goes to face his father, to pray, to to seek comfort and nurture there in his hour of distress. So they go to Gethsemane, they go to this garden. Jesus says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. They were accustomed to Jesus spending a lot of time in prayer, so this may not have seemed initially very strange to them. He goes further and we're told that he takes three with him, Peter, James, and John, That was kind of Jesus' inner circle all the way through the Gospels. You see Peter, James, and John, they get a little more attention, they get a little more energy than everyone else. He takes those guys with him, and we are told, Mark says, he began to be distressed and agitated. So they kind of go a little further, they leave nine disciples behind, or whoever, however many were with him, leave those behind, three go with him, and his distress and his agitation begins to grow, it begins to increase then, we are, then, then he says to the disciples, he begins to express his agony, the deep sense of his agony, and this is even more vivid than began to be distressed. I mean, maybe you've had moments in life where you are beginning to be distressed, and it could get really bad, maybe it's not as bad, maybe it could, you know, things get better after a moment, but for Jesus, it just continues to grow. And he tells Peter and James and John who are with him, my soul is deeply grieved, I am deeply grieved, And not just deeply grieved, I'm deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And if you want to just get a sense for how serious this is, I mean, surely you can remember a time in your life where you experienced just this this deep experience of grief or pain. Maybe it was after the the death of a loved one where you you feel your heart crumbling within you. Maybe it was after the... broken relationship, or maybe it was in a place of a, a, a marriage that was, that was struggling or coming apart, and maybe your kids, there was this distance, or there were some bad decisions, or whatever it is, maybe you can Im- remember a moment in your life where you just, 
you could almost utter these words, I am deeply grieved in my mind. I don't know how to handle this and I don't know how to process it and I don't know how to, how to, how to, I don't know what to do in this moment. It feels like death. I don't know how to get out of it, and there's no escape, and I can't, it just keeps the vividness of it, the pronounced, it just gets worse, and it's deeper, and that's where Jesus is, and Mark uses this stunningly, just this growing, vivid language to amplify for us the agony that Jesus is experiencing, and rightly so, because he's facing the cross, isn't he? We find out in a moment, though, that his suffering goes far beyond the physical pain that will come with the cross. He leaves Peter, James, and John behind. He goes further into the garden. Verse 35, going a little further. Now, we don't hear his words. We just are told about his throwing himself on the ground. Going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and he prayed if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And surely we've been in moments where we have this agony and we pray, God, can't you just get it over with? Can't we get past this? Can't, isn't there a way out? And Jesus is experiencing this. And friends, how this helps us see how much he identifies with us. How this amplifies his humanity to us. Right? It's so easy for us to kind of live in the place where we're thinking, you know, Jesus is God and He's God's Son and virgin birth and resurrection and we, we can kind of think of Him just kind of going around being God all over the place and we forget that He is fully human. But a true, robust Biblical understanding of who Jesus is is that He is fully God and fully human. He knows what it's like to be one of us. He knows what it's like to suffer like we suffer. And more so. And there have been times where the church has been tempted to kind of focus on the deity of Jesus and forget about His humanity and focus on His humanity and forget about His deity. And both are mistakes Right here in this garden, we have the Son of God in the body of Jesus suffering in agony. Emotional, psychological, bodily, spiritually. All of it together. The whole thing. He is dealing with it and struggling with it and suffering in this way. He threw Himself on the ground. How bad does it have to hurt? How big and pronounced does the agony have to be that you stop speaking and just throw yourself on the ground? When was the last time it hurt that bad? Surely he is thinking about the pain of the cross. You may or may not know that when a person dies from crucifixion, uh, it's not simply blood loss that ends the life. It is a suffocation. The Romans were particularly good at devising 
the most painful way to be excused. There was no notion of, uh, you know, they didn't set aside cruel and unusual punishment. They magnified cruel and unusual punishment. And when you were crucified and your wrists were spiked to a piece of wood, the weight is on your arms, it's very difficult to breathe. And so you try to push up a little bit against the nails in your ankles and the searing pain of spike running through foot. You push up until you can't handle that pain anymore and you let go and then you can't breathe again. You hold on there until you gasp for breath and you've mustered just a bit of strength to push up a little bit again. The searing pain runs through your feet. You take a quick breath and then you let the weight off. And that movement goes on for hours. Sometimes days. The Romans didn't avoid cruel and unusual punishment. They amplified it. They sought it out. Mark wants us to see that Jesus' agony is not limited to the potential or the, the, the coming physical pain of the cross. It comes with spiritual sorrow and agony as well. We discover this in the words of Jesus' prayer that Mark presents to us, verse 36, as Jesus has thrown Himself on the ground, He prays, Abba, Father, for You all things are possible, remove this cup from Me. This idea of God's cup all through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is typically the cup of His wrath. He mixes His fury with wine and pours it out on rebellious, sinful nations. And when Jesus says, remove this cup from me, He is recognizing that He is on His way to bearing in His body the wrath and judgment of God against the sins of the world. Now, we talk about the sins of the world a lot, but I doubt that we often really imagine the weight and horror of that. So take just a second and think through your own life. And think through the long list of your own transgressions. If your list is not long, you need to think a little harder and work a little harder. Now, if you've got that disgusting, dark list, multiply it for everyone in the room. Because they've got one too. It's a little bit worse, isn't it? Now, use your imagination to multiply it for everyone in the state. The nation. The world. I'm no mathematician, but I imagine we need some exponents for this. 
now move beyond geography to chronology, to history. And multiply the weight of individual sin and transgression and all of the horror from slavery to holocaust to all of it throughout the world, throughout history. Billions and billions. I have no idea how many people have lived throughout the history of the world. But it's a, it's a big number. And Jesus in this moment is anticipating carrying the weight, the spiritual weight of all of that agony and all of that suffering and all of that sin and all of that darkness and all of that rebellion is about to come crashing down and He is preparing to carry it in His body. No wonder He says, if there's an option, let's do it. Like, I don't think, we talk about Jesus died for the sins of the world. Like, take a minute and think about the sins of the world. I am deeply grieved. Even to death. Remain here. Keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass. Father, Abba, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And in that moment, love for you Overcame. The desire to avoid the suffering of the cross. The fact of pain does not negate the love of God. It amplifies. Now, we need to be careful here. Sometimes people read these texts and they construe this in terms of the innocent Jesus and the cruel father dumping his wrath like a cosmic visit to the woodshed. You know what I mean? Get a switch and get ready for your whipping. Sometimes it's construed as divine child abuse. And that's stunningly unhelpful. It's unhelpful because it's not sufficiently Trinitarian. We are Christians. We believe in the Trinity. The, the scriptures tell us about a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, united in power and will and love and glory and majesty and eternity. This is not the father over here and the son over here just turning it loose on the son because he's angry and furious like a you know, deadbeat dad who just shows up to knock somebody around. That's not what's happening here. The father and the son share one essential character. 
nature, being, heart. The Father and the Son are not just two persons, they are one God. We cannot just separate out different parts of God's work and attribute them to different members of the Trinity. So the Father creates and the Son redeems and the Spirit sustains. Father, Son, and Spirit create. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things came into being through Him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit redeem. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sustain us. We can't just separate these parts out. And that also goes for the judgment. The judgment that God enacts against sin on the cross is not the Father just dumping fury on the Son. It is the triune God, the one God, taking upon Himself the consequences of our sin that He insists on and taking them in Himself. Like in Jesus... The one God takes the consequences of our sin on the one God's self. And those consequences are consequences that the one God requires. Father, Son, and Spirit are unified in the work of redemption. Jesus is the Creator. Jesus is the Lawgiver. And Scripture says that when he returns, he will stand as judge. He has appointed one man who will judge all. It's not the Father judging the Son. Jesus is consistently the judge. And in the cross, he takes his own guilty verdict on himself. That's why the fact of pain doesn't negate the love of God. It amplifies it. Because in Jesus, God takes all of our darkness on Himself in love for us. The question arises often, why go through it? Why not just stop it? Can't God, if He's all, if He's perfectly good and perfectly powerful and perfectly loving, why does He allow all the suffering? Why is why does He why doesn't He just stop it? In fact, uh, the question came up in my own family just a week ago. Last Sunday, um, we were on vacation two weeks ago. Last Sunday, I came over at eight thirty and uh, heard Pastor Eric preach, and uh, grateful for him and John the week before that. And then uh, we drove up to Auburn for another church service uh, because Naomi's dad was announcing he, that he will be retiring next year after 41 years of ministry at Lakeview Baptist Church in Auburn. And uh, so it was a joy to be able to kind of be with uh, family on such a, a special occasion and um, just to celebrate faithful ministry. And friends, it, it, it is a joy to see the fruitfulness of four decades of faithful working in the same direction after the same mission for the glory of God and the good of the world. And so I want to honor my father-in-law in that way. 
We were on our way home Sunday afternoon, and Vivian, I forget quite how we got in this conversation. I think we, me and Patrick and Vivian and I were talking about the devil, and we were talking about sin and just different kinds of things. And Vivian said, why doesn't God just stop sin? Nine years old, clued into the, what, what philosophers call the problem of evil. Why doesn't God just stop sin? And the, com- the, way, the way that I kind of wanted to ask, have that discussion, because that's, you know, when your kids start asking you questions like that, you want you you it to be a fruitful time. You want to get it right. You want to encourage the inquisitiveness and, and draw them to faith in Jesus. And so we began to talk about the nature of love. Say, so, well, you know, God loves us. He wants to know us and be known by us. And, you know, if someone loves you, the only way they can love you is if they have the choice to not love you, right? right think about, you know, a, proposal, a marriage proposal. Someone, a, a, you know, a guy comes up and gets down on one knee and says, will, I love you, will you marry me? And if she doesn't have the opportunity to say no, we don't call it love or marriage, we call it slavery or trafficking or something, right? right? To have authentic love Either party has got to be able to say, no thanks, I'm out. And all the pain that comes with that. Right? When Adam ate the fruit, he was saying to God, I choose not to love you. And so I asked her, I said, you know, sweetheart, what if when someone went into sin, and in sinning they're saying, I don't love God, if he just stopped them, wouldn't they also lose the ability to love Him? Well, yeah, I guess they would. Right? If God just stops it, then there's no way that we can talk about loving Him or being loved by Him. So if you want a world where you can love God and be loved by Him, it takes a world where people can break it really bad. And we have, haven't we? Apparently, whatever it is that God wants and the joy and glory of knowing us and being known by us is worth it to Him. And He's not a detached observer. He is deeply involved in the reality of the pain of the world. I don't expect that that account of suffering will satisfy everyone. I know it doesn't, because I've had the conversation many times. What I find helpful is Gethsemane. When people say, if God knew all the suffering would come, why did He make the world? I can't help but think God did know the suffering that would come, and He still chose to make the world knowing that the fullness of the weight of it and the brunt of it and a far worse experience of it would fall on Him over us. He takes the weight of the sin of the world 
He made the world knowing full well that Gethsemane was coming. My heart, my soul is deeply grieved even to death. That's the Creator. The reality of pain doesn't nullify or negate the love of God. The fact that Jesus steps into our pain and takes more of it on Himself than any of us have ever even begun to imagine amplifies His perfect love to us. How grateful we should be for that. His pain is not enough for Him to walk away from us. The weight of the sins of the world is not enough for Him to abandon us. The sorrow, the judgment that He would take on Himself in place of us is overcome by His love. How He loves us. How He loves us. When you come to Gethsemane, my longing, my prayer, my hope is that you see the perfection of His love. In weakness, the disciples are falling asleep. They are running and fleeing. They are not they, they, they offer nothing. And He loves them. We come to Him with our weakness, and He loves us. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org slash sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.